Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right. Welcome to the Monday Scramble. I'm laughing because we've been having some technical problems here at the station over the last 24 hours or so. Some of the things that we might ordinarily want to do, we have to do differently. But we have a very elastic and supple team here. So I think we're figuring out. I've never heard that particular music before. but I don't know what that music should make me want to do, but I feel like it should make me want to. I think it does want me to do something. But I just don't know what. All right. So life is often like that. Let me tell you what's going to go on in the show today. A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about a story that it's we found journalists here in Connecticut in particular have found difficult to cover. It's the story of the Yale basketball team, their captain, uh, who has been expelled from the university. Um, and there's been a kind of um, slow drip of information about this, but it, it does appear now as though the expulsion is connected to a charge of sexual misconduct. Uh, but most of the information we have doesn't kind of rise to the level uh, at which we would ordinarily begin reporting on something like this. And, and yet we are reporting on it because of kind of campus unrest connected to it. I don't know. I'll do a better job of explaining it uh, later in the show. And in the final segment, you know, last week we had a conversation with Steve Allman uh, about the rise of Donald Trump, and a number of people objected to the tone of that conversation. So what we're going to do here at the end of the show today is just kind of let you talk. Uh, I've got some things I want to say. I mean, it's like you can't let a day go by, really, without talking about this. Um, and certainly we've seen a piv- some pivots by some interesting journalists, uh, people like Jonathan Chait and Matthew Iglesias in the last, I don't know, 24, 48 hours have kind of changed their position on Trump and, and said that, you know, even though some of the heterodoxy of uh, his, some of his positions and, and the, his potential to inoculate certain issues by dragging them out into the light uh, is now outweighed by just the terrifying amount of violence associated with them. So anyway, we'd love to hear from you on your changing positions. I'll tell you the phone number now, although don't dial it yet because we have a ways to go. The number is 860-275-7266. So for now, just silently chant it to yourselves. Uh, we're going to start with a different issue. Uh, joining us right now is Michael Spector. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker. And the author of Denialism, How Irrational Thinking Hinders Scientific Progress, Harms the Planet, and Threatens Our Lives. Uh, we're going to talk very specifically about, I guess you would call it either a gaffe or a mischaracterization, something that Hillary Clinton said, I believe on MSNBC, I believe at the funeral of Nancy Reagan, but uh, Michael Spector is so much better equipped to set this up than I that I'll hand the baton to him. First of all, uh, Michael Spector, welcome to the show. And second, second of all, to tell us what it is we're talking about here. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, what we're talking about, I think, is uh, sort of unimaginably foolish gaffe, but I don't think it's probably more than that. Um, she basically said that um, in sort of eulogizing her on NBC, said she had uh, she and her husband had contributed greatly to the discussion about HIV and AIDS. And in fact, before then, there wasn't a discussion and that they really started it. Um, this is one of the most egregiously ridiculous things any public politicians ever said. So she quickly, to her credit, retracted it. Uh, but in retracting it, she said something, um, to my mind, equally ridiculous, which was that 
while she was wrong, or as she put it, she misspoke about the AIDS issue, um, really, quote, strong advocates for stem cell research and Alzheimer's research. Um, the truth is that Ronald Reagan never was an advocate in any way for anything having to do with stem cell research or Alzheimer's research. He got Alzheimer's. And like most people who love someone, when Nancy Reagan saw her husband plunge into darkness and despair, some of her basic views were challenged, and to her credit, she then started to support stem cell research. But her husband famously opposed it his entire life. So the idea that Hillary Clinton could suggest that he didn't is, well, it's bewildering to me. So so let's back this up a little bit, because I don't want to gloss over the first part of that, because it, it really was kind of a remarkable... I mean, there's two kinds of mischaracterizations that you can do. One of them is about uh, a, a detail or a fact that people m tend not to remember or, or might be murky or might uh, have, have just sort of faded uh, into the background. That wasn't this kind of thing. This is the thing yeah. where anybody who would follow the issue with any kind of interest knew that, in fact... The opposite of what she had said was true, uh, that, in fact, they hadn't started a conversation. Ronald and Nancy Reagan had not started the conversation or enabled a productive conversation about AIDS and AIDS research, that they'd been an impediment to it. And certainly even in the coverage surrounding Nancy Reagan's death, as flattering as that kind of coverage tends to be, it was impossible even at that time to ignore the fact that this seemed like a major failing. The documents had even surfaced recently that indicated that uh, when her friend Rock's, uh, Rock Hudson was beseeching her for for uh, help uh, in the last days of his sickness, she was not willing to give it to him either. Uh, it just seems like a very odd thing to say. It, 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 it's not a gray area, and it's not something that you could easily be mistaken about. It, it's something that you would have to, in fact, turn a somersault to be mistaken about. Yeah, you get no disagreement from me. It was astonishing. And you know, a couple people wrote to me and said, oh, you know, she screwed up, she made a mistake in any way. She couldn't use her influence to help Rock Hudson. It would have been inappropriate. Well, I don't make decisions about that, but it, it would not have been inappropriate for her to be human and say, gee, my close friend Rock Hudson is dying of this terrible disease. I mean, she didn't do a thing. She didn't lift a finger. Um, you know, and again, as I said in the thing I wrote, I hate to speak ill of the dead, while they just died, but this is such a mischaracterization. And Ronald Reagan went six years before saying the word AIDS in public, and he only did that when reporters forced him to. I mean, it's it was one of the most outrageously um, despicable displays of caring about humans that we've seen in the federal government in decades. So I'm going to ask you a question that you have implicitly or explicitly refused to answer in the very first words of the piece that you wrote in The New Yorker. Because, I mean, I, I'm less interested in Ronald and Nancy Reagan right now. I mean, their, yeah, their, I their, their facts are settled, and, and I agree with everything that you say about this. But I'm just kind of wondering, somebody with Hillary Clinton's background, her savvy, she's walking in the footsteps uh, as First Lady of Nancy Reagan. She would be very familiar with all this. She's not a stupid person. Uh, she has this opportunity to say something. She says 
a thing which she absolutely had to know, you know, in, in a very conscious realm of her mind was untrue. You begin your piece, Michael, by saying, you know, you leave it to a better psychologist than you uh, to figure out why somebody would say something like this. But I mean, do you think this is just kind of working the room and therefore trying to say something positive in, in a situation where people are saying positive things because it's a funeral? I have to, that would be the nicest interpretation. I mean, I don't think Hillary Clinton is, she's clearly not stupid, and I don't think she's evil, and she actually has a record of supporting uh, HIV-AIDS activists. So it's hard to imagine that she sat down and calculated that she was going to do this for some political good. But I just, so then I have to say, well, maybe she's exhausted, and she just sort of was babbling on about trying to say nice things. But, you know, I'm not a political reporter, but I'm not really sure we want people exhausted saying ridiculously things running our country, though there seems to be quite a bunch of them attempting to do that. Now, the next question would be, why does this matter? And obviously it matters just because the truth matters. But I think also, given the work that you've done in the past, there's also a way in which things that have scientific truth to them need to be talked about a certain way. Uh, things that are, are medically and scientifically true are often decided in a way that's sort of more tribal and and, and political than, than it probably should have been. Certainly, um, you know, as you go through the history of the Ryan White Act uh, and, and the notion really that you know, the, the first major piece of legislation about this had to be named after somebody who was a little bit of a statistical outlier in terms of the where this disease hit. That, that there are reasons just in terms of how science and public policy interact to get these things right. No, I agree. I mean, I've spent a lot of my career worrying about this, and I'm actually more concerned about the stem cell part of it because the stem cell opposite, I mean, not that I'm not concerned about the HIV part, but it, uh, that history is known. The stem cell stuff is completely political. I mean, there are many, many people who object to using a very valuable avenue of medical research for reasons that are scientifically ludicrous. And the Reagans were among those people. So for Nancy, for Hillary Clinton not to note that into in anything, in any way, to help people continue the, the belief that it's okay to sort of pretend something is true that isn't true is incredibly discouraging. So there's a way in which, uh, and maybe we need um, uh, more of a political reporter than we than either one of us is right now. But but I bet you we can talk about this anyway. So you just just to go back to the the her sort of her secondary gaffe. So the first gaffe is basically saying that the Reagan started talking about AIDS way back when before uh, people were talking about it. Got this whole conversation launched. We know that's not true. And then the tweet that she um, issued to correct this, uh, as you say, is while the Reagans were strong advocates for stem cell research and finding a cure for Alzheimer's disease, I misspoke about their record on HIV and AIDS. For that, I'm sorry. Um, it, it does seem as though, you know, there's an odd thing about Hillary Clinton, which is she's obviously a very, very smart person who's been a very successful person her entire life and has, has, has aimed high and hit many of her, her high targets. But when she makes these mistakes, they have this way of kind of getting infected, you know? I mean, there's like the first mistake, and then I guess that's a bad image to use, but there's the first mistake, then there's the second mistake, as you say, the, the part about stem cells and Alzheimer's disease, and then there's this kind of third layer where writers like you and, and others come in and begin asking kind of basic questions about her. You know, she's 
basically been pretty good on a lot of these issues, although, you know, it could be argued. Actually, she, for whatever reason, voted against the renewal in 2006 of the Ryan White Act and, and seemed uh, to go, want to go pretty slow or, or on things like, well, on things like gay marriage. I mean, it took her a long time to kind of so-called get religion on that, that every time she does something like this, it cascades into a series of conversations about who she really is. I think that's fair. She's run, she wants to run the United States, and she's been in the public eye for many, many years, and we still don't know who she is. I mean, the thing, I'm obviously I'm not a political reporter, but to, I am a technical one, and to put your email on a private server in your house and act maybe that's okay from a security standpoint alone and then not apologize for it for any months – is really bizarre behavior. I'm not in any way suggesting she was trying to secretly, you know, keep information away from people. You can't do that. It would never work. But why on earth she thought that was acceptable? It's just these are lapses of judgment that have to make anybody anxious. And, and I think the last part of this, and it's a very difficult thing to, part, to talk about, is, is kind of the level of heart, too. And there's a piece, I think, that ran in The Nation uh, about this, talking about how, in many respects, for, some, for many gay men, Hillary Clinton had been or has been uh, almost kind of a gay icon, a woman who really has taken her lumps and, and taken slings and arrows uh, uh, from, uh, from various detractors. And in some of the ways that, that Barbara Streisand or Cher or, or pick somebody else has become a gay icon that a lot of it involves sort of taking your lumps and, and being a strong woman in the face of all that, that she, that she has that kind of status, except that this is an issue that the whole question of AIDS research and when it started and whether, you know, thousands and thousands of gay men died from a, a disease that was at least somewhat preventable at that time had there been uh, earlier research and a lot more Everett Koop type information uh, about what to be what could be done to prevent oneself from getting it. You know, this is this is something that people connect to at the level of their heart. And so to have her heart be in kind of a very different place or her almost emotional set of memories about this be in a very different place, it's got to be disconcerting to one of the constituencies that in a way she's always had. Yeah, I'm sure that it is, but I also have to say, as someone who's watched her for a long time, she doesn't, you know, her heart is not the thing that I think about her. I think she is a woman who wants to accomplish certain things and is willing to move the goalposts in ways that I've always found uncomfortable. When she started this whole um, we need a national health care thing. When her husband was president, she ran that commission. And the very first thing she did is she went to someone who I know quite well, who was on the Hill and asked him to write legislate, legislation. So the first thing we need to do is make sure that every child in the United States gets free vaccines. Now, I'm a big pro-vaccine advocate, but my friend said, you can't do that. And she said, why? And he said, because there are many, many, many Americans who can afford to get their children vaccinations, and we can't spend $150 million on something that we need to spend that money on much more. And she refused to listen to him. She insisted that it be in the legislation. And it was one of the many reasons that's, that just disappeared instantly. I, I, you know, I mean, I think her, she believes that her principles are so pure that it doesn't matter how she achieves her goals. 
All right. Well, uh, on that somewhat bleak note, we're going to have to stop. But uh, thanks to Michael Spector. He's staff writer with The New Yorker. You can read his piece. It's up on the site right now. Uh, and he's the author of Denialism, How Irrational Thinking Hinders Scientific Process, Harms the Planet, uh, and Threatens Our Lives. And we will be back with a conversation about the controversy at Yale right now and the, the end of the show. We're going to open up the phones, let you do a little town hall thing uh, about how you're feeling about the Trump ascendancy. All right. For the last week or more, I've been um, circulating emails here at the station talking about how we are going to cover, if we are going to cover, uh, the story of a basketball player or an ex-basketball player at Yale. It's an extraordinarily difficult uh, story to cover. Uh, in some ways, uh, some of the allegations don't really achieve the thresholds we normally set for covering this kind of thing. In other ways, though, the debate uh, on the campus and in the Yale community uh, has been so public and so strident that it's nearly impossible not to cover it. So uh, we're going to talk to one of the people who has the somewhat unenviable uh, job uh, of covering it. Uh, it's Kathy Megan. She's an education reporter for the Hartford Current, I should say, by way of uh, putting one's cards on the tables that we are longtime friends. And her husband edits my column at the Current. So um, with that, Kathy Megan, welcome back to our show. Hi, Colin. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. So um, I'm going to let you set the stage a little bit. The story we're about to tell, um, at least the, the the first part of the story, involves uh, a guy named Jack Montague. He's the captain of the, he was the captain of the Yale basketball team. Uh, he had been one of their standout players in what has been uh, a landmark season for them. They have won the Ivy League title and made the uh, NCAA championship uh, draw for the first time since, I think, 1962. So this would be a happy time at Yale, except that very near the end of that run, uh, Jack Montague disappeared from the team, disappeared from its roster uh, without a whole lot of explanation at first. And then in a kind of drip, drip, drip way, more information came out about this. And Kathy, I'll let you pick up the story from there. What, what have we learned about this situation? Well, actually, um, today we kind of learned a lot more um, because Jack's lawyer made a statement about what had happened. But before then, um, we knew he had been withdrawn from the team. His last game was February 6th. And um, I kind of came to the story late last week, but there was obviously a lot of discussion about why he had been withdrawn. But Yale was not saying anything officially. Um, but there were students who knew of things and such. And, you know, the story was that there had been, that he had been expelled because of a sexual assault situation. And, um, but we did not have that confirmed. Um, by anyone, uh, by the university or anybody else. Um, but today, um, his lawyer uh, released a statement uh, announcing that uh, Jack is going to sue the university, um, saying that he was expelled on February 10th um, after a panel at Yale found him, um, found that he had unconsented to sex um, 15 months earlier in October 2014. Um, with a female student who's, who's at Yale. Um, so they went into some detail about what happened, um, but they're saying that it was extremely unfair, et cetera. Um, so that's sort of where it stands right now. I mean, students have been kind of, um, as you might imagine, um, there's been a lot of discussion on campus um, because the team, for the first time in 50 years, um, had made uh, had had won the Ivy League title and was going on to the NCAA tournament. So there were a lot of people who wanted to cheer about that, and um, 
And along the way, um, I don't know how much you want to go into this, but the team had, um, in a show of support for their captain, Jack Montague, had um, shown up at a game with T-shirts um, with his nickname, Gucci, on it. Um, and his and number. I, I happen to have been sitting there in the basketball arena that night. Uh, and, and I will say the crowd was completely mystified. They were wearing these gray T-shirts, which they do not ordinarily wear. I think Yale's name was either backwards or inside out or something like that on the T-shirts. Uh, they all had the numeral four on them, which was Montague's number, and then yeah. then Gucci. And I can even say filing out after that game. It was the Yale-Harvard game. Uh, people were still trying to figure out what that was, and including students. It wasn't necessarily the case that everybody on campus that night understood what was happening here. It was really almost a message that the Yale basketball players were sending to themselves or, or to the immediate, the first ring of people around them and the team. Uh, not something that the, even at that point, um, there, there wasn't even understood why Jack Montague wasn't on the team anymore. And I talked to undergraduates that night who were unclear about it. And so the notion that it had something to do with sexual misconduct, uh, unconsented to uh, sex, really only emerged in a trickle over over days and weeks, as far as I could tell. Yes, that's right. And, of course, the basketball team's behavior became um, a major uh, issue on campus um, because many students um, who, you know, as as the stories were getting rolling about that he had been um, expelled over sexual misconduct, um, many people felt that the team was um, showing, the team's support for him was sort of an insult or very insensitive to people who have survived sexual assault. Um, For the team to be supporting somebody who perhaps had left the campus um, having been expelled for sexual misconduct. Um, So that in itself became a very big issue. The team subsequently apologized in various ways. Um, But so uh, that's that sort of is where it has stood, um, although today's development is a really big one, and that's um, Jack Montague's lawyer coming forward with this um, statement, a, a rather detailed account of what happened and what, he's, what his side of the story was in the situation. And, and do you know, I know this is a developing story, which is really broken within the last few hours, uh, Kathy Megan, but do you know, I mean, do you know whether that lawsuit has been filed by his lawyer, Max Stern, if so, if it's in federal court or in state court, or are we still in the kind of talking stages about this? That's a good point. Actually, I just talked to the lawyer. He said it's going to be filed within a month. Hmm. The, the lawyer's name is Max Stern from Boston, who's handled, um, uh, who's involved with a similar sort of misconduct case up in um, at Amherst. Um, and um, so, I mean, he's saying they're going to file it within a month. And um, and he's, you know, is very, he, he, when I was talking to him, it was interesting. He was basically saying that he thinks that for years, universities have turned a blind eye to this very serious problem of sexual misconduct on campus, but that now they're overcorrecting and overreacting um, and that they're basically going too far in terms of um, uh, essentially because they're deciding these cases on a preponderance of evidence, which he does not feel is fair um, to people who are accused of 
misconduct. Yeah, so let's back up and, and look at a couple of aspects of this. And maybe the first thing we should say, Kathy, is that this um, has posed dilemmas for journalists, too, that uh, what we have here is a situation where if it happened outside a, a university context where there was an administrative process, if this just happened to to, to John Doe, a, a random adult in, in the greater Hartford area, the current probably wouldn't write about it or cover it if there was no police report, no real record of uh, of charges filed uh, that they just wouldn't hit the threshold at which it could be discussed in print and certainly not with the name uh, of the alleged perpetrator. But it, it, because of the way things work on college campuses, and I think specifically because of the way this played out with a somewhat famous basketball player and some of the initial reactions literally being either things on social media or things like written in chalk or written on walls, uh, that that the story started to get told in a way that was difficult to ignore, but also difficult to subject to the kind of scrutiny that we like to subject this to. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And there were a lot of issues and discussions here about, you know, whether to report on this report story, as you were saying, you're having at NPR, what to report. Um, normally, in this kind of a case, we don't get the names. I mean, it just happens to be that this guy was the captain of the basketball team and his withdrawal from school was extremely public. Um, normally, we don't know any of that stuff in terms of the names or identity or anything. Um, and it is a very difficult situation because, um, of course, on colleges, um, the, the judicial system is quite different than the criminal system. And there are questions about um, we don't really know. We, we, we can't look at the complaint or anything filed in court or something like that to find out what the evidence is. Um, so it puts us in a very uh, difficult position. Yeah, and I think that position is sort of, I mean, we're getting a tweet about this saying it's a non-story. I wish the media would veer away from gossip and, do you know, what X said and focus on policy issues. The difficulty with that and with this story is that it's already risen to the level of a debate on the college campus. If we don't cover it, uh, it suggests that we don't take it seriously or we don't take these issues seriously. Uh, and what's happened, uh, I think, also in the kind of environment that exists on college campuses these days, what we've seen over the last 18 months is it's very hard for college campuses these days to have um, a debate about something like this that doesn't verge into stridency pretty quickly. So the Yale basketball team did, after the initial wave of pushback, issue a pretty grown-up sounding uh, apology saying that they really, you know, they understood what was being said and they certainly, you know, felt bad that in any way people, you know, felt as though their own values were being challenged by the Yale basketball team's support for its teammate. Uh, Jonathan Holloway, the dean of Yale College, he's been at the heart of some of these other controversies, also issued a statement saying that he he hoped he understood that you know people's emotions were rising high in a situation like that. He hoped that there could be civil debate on the about this on the campus. Uh, he got an awful lot of pushback from people who were saying, "No, don't tell us how to have this conversation. Uh, when you do that, you're contributing to the kind of hierarchical problem that we're trying to address here. So don't tell us, particularly the the, the community of people who feel that this is a climate of sexual assault." And it's not restricted to this one case. Don't tell us how to talk about this. So, I mean, it's been, you know, it's been a for us to turn a blind eye in, in the press to this conversation right now. We, we'd have to really put pretty heavy blinders on to pretend this wasn't happening. No, no, it's really it speaks to what's been happening on college campuses all across the country. Uh, basically, since about 2011, when the U.S. Department of Education um, issued what they call a dear colleague letter, 
telling colleges that they need they needed to get tougher and they needed to basically ensure that they have a safe environment um, for everybody on college campuses, and that meant that they had to have they had to enforce um, basically their rules regarding sexual misconduct uh, in, a, in a much stronger way, have more programs about sexual assault prevention, and they had to basically, I mean, for years, this had somewhat gotten brushed under the rug. And so the U.S. Department of Education more or less told them that, you know, they would be in trouble if they didn't step things up. And, um, and so at about the same time, groups of young women began using Title IX to um, file these uh, suits against colleges for not adequately protecting them against sexual assault. So it, 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 it is sort of hard to ignore this because it is part of a movement that's been happening um, that's kind of in a great crescendo lately in terms of how much attention is paid to this issue and how many suits are being filed. And you can sort of see that the other side is pushing back now. There's now just becoming, you know, a cadre of lawyers whose specialty is kind of is defending people of usually young men accused of um, sexual misconduct who've been expelled and whose lives have been, you know, completely derailed. Um, not to teach not that the life of the victim is not completely derailed, but it's interesting that there's this kind of pushback going on. Yeah, so and we should say that Yale specifically uh, has come under federal scrutiny way back uh, starting in 2011 uh, on this situation, too. It's There's sort of a general push at the federal level about this topic, but but Yale itself uh, has been under the spotlight at least once before. It has been pushed to change their own standards. But I just want to go back and, and kind of uh, underscore one thing that you said before, Kathy Megan, which is, you know, a lot of this um, is governed by, by the federal Title IX, and one of the things that the Title IX sets uh, as a standard for acting on these cases of sexual misconduct or so-called unconsented to sex is the standard of a preponderance of evidence, which kind of gets interpreted as 50 percent plus N, you know, that uh, if, if it's a little bit more than 50 percent uh, suggesting the guilt of the accused, that that's the way things go. And certainly in criminal proceedings, that's not the way things go. You have to do much better. The burden of proof is much better than that. So it puts everybody in this odd twilight realm where, in fact, something that ordinarily is, you know, I mean, the guilt the guilt of a severe, significant, significant criminal charge is usually held to a very, very tough standard, is held to a considerably more elastic one, at least in this one environment. Yes, no, that's definitely true. And when I was talking to some of the lawyers um, who are stepping forward, basically um, defending the uh, the accused, they were saying that it's become sort of a survivor-centric culture, one of them was saying, and they don't, you know, they basically don't think that that's fair, that if you're talking about, uh, you know, a semi-legal kind of proceeding, you shouldn't start from a survivor-centric point of view, um, they would argue, um, and um, that it should be more of a neutral point of view. And, and they, they talk about how many of the cases that are, that in, at many colleges and universities um, it's Title IX administrators that are overseeing the judiciary system or they're, that are involved and that they um, with a certain bias. Um, so it is very interesting that, I mean, on the, on the other hand, it's been years and years of uh, people who, uh, you know, of basically victims who were not getting any attention on college campuses so, and not getting treated fairly through the system. 
Yeah, your so, your your heart goes out to the victims who didn't get hurt in the past, and, and potentially, I mean, we just don't know mm-hmm. anything about this young man. He may be uh, innocent. He may be a monster. He may be something in between. We just don't know. But I do feel a little bit bad if, if there's any possibility that he's innocent. You really feel pretty bad about the fact that in, in today's Googleable world, he'll never get his reputation back. This is going to follow him around for the rest of his life, uh, whether he's guilty or not. Yes, no, that's that's definitely true. Um, and um, But I, I guess one thing that you can say, however, at this point, is that while there was some question about kind of what had happened, I mean, his lawyer is saying that he was expelled for, you know, because of this accusation about unconsented two-sex, which I think we weren't. I mean, the university was not confirming that before, but and the university is still not confirming that, but that's what the lawyer is saying in any case. Right. And and one of the questions that we may be pursuing in the weeks ahead is why, if if this whole timeline is true, then it's like a 15-month process, which also seems like kind of a long time if it's, uh, if it's really true. But uh, anyway, Kathy Megan, thank you so much for uh, taking time today. I know it's a busy day with these developments breaking. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Colin. Appreciate it. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will have kind of a town hall here if you want to talk about the current election, especially the ascendancy of Donald Trump. Our number, 860-275-7266. Dial early. Dial often. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Steve McQueen. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff dressed as Trump rally reenactors, go to our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, Bill and Julia's annual March Madness Party. And now, back to Colin. All right, yeah, so very quickly tomorrow, every year uh, for the actual basketball playoffs, once we get done with the tournament of books and also sorting through uh, difficult Title IX cases connected to Yale basketball uh, and things like that, we actually do uh, a show to help you get ready to fill out your brackets. And we may not be as big an expert uh, or a group of experts as, say, you might find at the Worldwide Leader of Sports over there in Bristol. We do our best. And every year it's Bill Curry and Julia Pastel who are the kind of the co-anchors. Uh, Bill knows a lot about basketball or thinks he does. And uh, Julia has these um, idiosyncratic ways of filling out her brackets, which are often surprisingly successful. So anyway, that will be that. Plus, I think Mike Pesca, Brandon Sherrod from the Yale basketball team uh, and uh, whoever else we wind up getting. There'll be lots of interesting people there always are. So that's coming up. I also want to quickly mention that on April 6th, uh, at Watkinson School. Uh, this is kind of a little bit linked to sports as well. We're going to have a conversation uh, about public investment in sports, you know, whether, whether it's the Whalers or the Patriots coming to Hartford or the uh, or not coming to Hartford uh, or the Yard Goats. Uh, we inevitably go through conversations about to what degree uh, is uh, having a sport franchise or, or UConn's role here in the state of Connecticut. Uh, are, are the successes of sports franchises linked to the successes uh, of functioning communities and to what what degree is it worth investing taxpayer dollars in them, stuff like that. So we are uh, assembling a pretty interesting panel for that night. We've already got Oz Griebel from uh, from Metro Hartford Alliance uh, and Josh Solomon, uh, owner of the Hartford Yard Goats, uh, have committed to doing this, and uh, we'll be getting other panelists as well. So go to the Watkinson.org website, uh, Watkinson School. Look for the Freshly Squeezed logo. Click on that. Order your tickets. There's a lovely dinner beforehand that you can go to and meet and greet some of us. Uh, otherwise, it's at 7 
11 p.m. that night, and we look forward to having a lively conversation. Uh, the Yard Goats start playing the next day in Richmond, Virginia. Of course, their stadium here in Hartford is not going to be ready for a little while. So uh, anyway, all of that is to come. Right now, I want to give you guys a chance. And yeah, so last week, last Monday, we had a conversation with uh, Steve Allman about why he was genuinely alarmed at the rise of Donald Trump and angry at certain members of the Republican Party for, in his view, uh, enabling that rise. Um, A lot of things have happened since then. Things continue to happen. And certainly the conversation that we've had over the last four or five days has had more to do with violence at at Trump rallies, uh, Trump's ability either to control and suppress that violence or to inflame it. Um, and we've also seen uh, a number of people harden off their positions about Donald Trump, notably among journalists, uh, even in the last 48 hours, Matthew Iglesias uh, on Vox.com uh, and Jonathan Chait on the New York Magazine website, both said that you know, for different reasons, they were a little bit more open to Trump's candidacy. Iglesias thought, well, that Trump was a little bit more heterodox on some of his policy positions, uh, not being an interventionist in, in the Middle East, uh, having some good things to say about Planned Parenthood. There's uh, some other uh, examples of that, uh, that he might really represent a different kind of more complicated thinking, although that's not ordinarily associated with Donald Trump within the Republican Party. Uh, for Jonathan Chait, uh, he sort of thought saw it more as finally having somebody who talked about real issues within certain ranks, uh, uh, certain Republican ranks, uh, in a more direct way instead of sending dog whistles. He thought that was kind of a good thing. They are both backed away from the notion that this is in any way a good thing. Uh, They're both very concerned about what's happening. Uh, I know a lot of you are, too. Uh, Maybe some of you are not so concerned. Maybe some of you feel as though outlets like this one don't give Donald Trump and his supporters a fair shake. Uh, We'd be happy to hear that from you as well. You may call us at 860-275. 7266 860-275-7266. I have a lot to say about this, too. I could easily just talk to myself for the next 14 minutes, but that's not what I want to do. I want to talk to you. So uh, let's start with Walter in Agawam, Massachusetts. Uh, hi, Wal- uh, Yeah, there he is. Hi, Walter. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I, I know your time is short. I'll try and keep it quick, but I am I am uh, consider myself a stalwart a uh, patriot and a supporter of the values on which this country was founded. And I am scared to death. I'm scared to death. I see, you know, we wonder how a reasonable people like the German nation in 1930s could have allowed the rise of Adolf Hitler. And we're seeing that played out here right now. Hitler, a, a minor figure, ran for public office. People who were angry and disaffected came to his rallies. He took that and told them what they wanted to hear. He could fix everything. And then he began to use the police to quell the people who were opposing him. And then he began to say, well, that's not enough. I'll get my own people to go after them. And it's all happening just as it happened then. And I, I know you were mentioning that there are people who are, are alarmed by this. I'm, I wish I was hearing more of those voices. Uh, because I, I, I've never felt this way in any election during my entire political awareness. All right, Walter, we are at least hearing your voice. Our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I'll just quickly add parenthetically before we get to Raymond and to Charlotte that this is something that uh, I've been thinking a lot about, too, and trying to decide ultimately who Donald Trump is in with respect 
right now anyway, to what seems to be kind of a rising tide of hooliganism, right? So you have these situations where people become violent at his rallies or his rallies turn violent. Um, and my initial thought has been, had been, well, he is who he is, and then he attracts a certain kind of person who's probably a little bit more of a hooligan or a thug than Donald Trump would ever want to be. And, and the problem with Trump is that he does, doesn't understand uh, how quickly that can propagate uh, and that things might propagate in his name that are not things that he signs on to. I, like Matthew Iglesias and others, am now noticing the stuff that he's saying specifically now in the last 24 to 48 hours where it just seems I and mean, he's been saying it straight along too that he, you know he he wants to punch certain people in the face he misses the old good old days when people would get sent out of something like that on a stretcher to use his term so it's not as though he was ambivalent about it in the past but he seems in particular being given an opportunity or a juncture in this narrative to really denounce the violence and say we've got to stop this he's not saying that and one of the things he has been saying is he'll send his own people to Bernie Sanders rallies, um, which seems to be, you know, maybe not what we need to hear right now. Uh, all right. So uh, let's go to Raymond in West Haven. We got a lot of people calling in. Raymond, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Colin? Okay. I, I just to your show by every day, my friend. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I want to say something. Trump is definitely, uh, he, that dictator, everything he's saying is dictatorship. He's talking about putting up a wall. Well, I listened to the people from Mexico, the president, said he would not pay for that. Okay, so if he put up a wall, who's going to pay for it? He's a billionaire, but he's a very bad businessman. Trump University didn't educate nobody. Trump Airlines didn't, didn't fly nobody. <laughs> you understand what I'm telling you? He, he ain't such a good businessman. He's a bad politician. He is truly a dictator. And because the wall is to keep them out, is to keep us in. Hmm. And I really do, I, I would have to leave this. I'm a veteran. And I risk my life and my family. And to have this man, that these people, a lot of people are gullible, sir. Hmm. They'll follow anybody. They can they'll take them some place and they're going to leave them nowhere. This man has no political, real political ideas whatsoever. He shouldn't, not, he shouldn't even be in there. Yeah, All right, okay. Raymond. It's good. It's good to hear from you, and important uh, that you note. Also, you're a veteran, somebody who served, somebody who, as you say, risked your life for this country, and very worried about where things are going. And I don't mean to shut you down, but there's so many people calling up right now. Our phones are very, very full. So uh, here's Charlotte in South Windsor. Hi, Charlotte. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to express, uh, along with many others, the, uh, the grave concern I have for uh, Donald Trump as being. Uh, the man who would be having his hand on the nuclear button or be the primary representative uh, negotiating with other nations on our behalf, being uh, supposedly a peacemaker with the Russians or any other group. Uh, I think there's some baseline um, character qualities that our president should have, and he doesn't have any of them. Mm. All right. Well, uh, yeah, Charlotte, th thank you. Uh, I hear your concern. I hear your worry. Uh, let's hear from a supporter uh, of a different politician, a different Republican politician. This is Jonathan in Manchester. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, how you doing? Thanks Good. for having me on the air. Sure. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a supporter of John Kasich, and uh, I know it looks pretty bleak right now, but <laughs> I'm still uh, holding out hope that if Kasich is able to cobble together some uh, some fraction of the total delegate count, that um that he might because you know because he hasn't really been critical of any of the other major candidates and nor have they been critical of him, so I think he might be positioning himself to uh to be able to play 
Cruz and Trump against each other, if, should, should none of them get a uh, plurality or not, should none of them get, get a majority by the time the voting's done, he might be able to go to Cruz and say, look, I'm going to be Trump's running mate unless you be my running mate. So maybe Kasich might be able to pull off some kind of a coup uh, between the end of the voting and before the convention. Well, coups are what we're a little bit worried about here in this country in the other way, though. But uh, it's an interesting point, Jonathan. Obviously, Kasich has tried to position himself as the adult in this conversation. It just seems as though that his tone misses the mark of this moment. Unfortunately, it would be great if people with uh, essentially adult and reasonable messages were being listened to. But Jeb Bush didn't last very long, and Kasich has uh, had trouble moving the needle right now. It seems as though uh, what the anti-Trump forces are doing, getting ready for tomorrow's primaries, too, is setting up uh, a kind of blocking motion where uh, at least some of the Kasich supporters uh, in Florida may be encouraged to vote for Rubio, maybe some of the Rubio supporters in Ohio being encouraged to vote for Kasich. But uh, it's going to take a brokered convention and a pretty disorganized brokered convention uh, for John Kasich, I think, to to become meaningful. Uh, And even then, he's going to have a hard time. He's not going to go in there with very many delegates. It's, It's hard to bargain your way into the presidency when you have such a weak hand. Uh, all right, here's, well, we do have a Trump supporter. Here's Wesley in Hartford. Hi, you're on the air. How you doing? Okay. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Trump supporter, and the thing that bothers me is these protesters that go into his rallies, the protesters are the ones that are looking for violence. It has nothing to do with Donald Trump. If they don't support him, don't go to the rallies. Although there certainly and, have been... And they're, they're blaming Donald Trump for the violence. If there's going to be violence, why would the protesters go? If they didn't go, there wouldn't be any violence. On the other hand, I mean, you know, you do kind of want to have an environment where somebody can maybe stand up and, and say something or hold a sign and not, not get punched, not get kicked, not get thrown to the floor, right? And, and there have been repeated instances where that happens to protesters who haven't themselves done anything violent or aggressive. So it's kind of hard for me to understand why you'd say that the protesters go there looking for violence. And on the other hand, they're saying that Donald Trump is racist. He's not racist at all. He's not... Marco Rubio is actually funded by the Koch brothers, which are very racist. They don't talk about that. Yeah, I think when people say that Donald Trump, Trump, yeah, I think when people say that Donald Trump is racist, I mean, they're speaking specifically about some of his fairly vivid and accurate characterizations uh, of um, Mexican immigrants crossing the border uh, and and also of his suggestions about how he would handle America's Muslim population. Um, I think that's what they're talking about right there. It's not so much who's backing him, but what he says. But anyway, Wesley, it is great. I mean, in a weird way, it's great to hear from a Donald Trump supporter and to know that um, you know, that you're out there supporting him. Actually, if he's still there, I'm going to ask him one more. Wesley, are you still there? Yes. What is it you do like about Trump? Forget about what everybody else is doing. What is it that uh, you do like about Trump? What's making you a Trump supporter? I think he could change the economy. I think he's honest. I think he tells the truth whether you want, whether you like it or not. I think all the other politicians are just going to say what everybody wants to hear. All right. Well, so that's, you know, once again, always good to know what people are thinking. All right. Here's where am I supposed to go next? There's a whole bunch of different people here. Um, Well, we'll start maybe with Steve and Higginham and then uh, Kathleen and Cheshire. Um, Hi, Steve. You're on the air. Uh, Hi, Colin. Um, My question is, you know, there are regulations about doing things like yelling fire in a movie theater and inciting panic and violence. Where do you think Donald Trump's rhetoric falls in that regard? 
Well, I, I, first of all, case law, federal case law on the First Amendment is pretty well worked out there. And one of the things that it bends over backwards not to do is inhibit any kind of political speech, no matter what that political speech is. It tries not to inhibit uh, political speech. Now, but you're raising an, and so even in the even when something maybe crosses the line, and I think I do understand the question you're asking, if. Uh, if in certain situations uh, Donald, Donald Trump yells to his supporters, you know, we should punch him in the face or, or or something along those lines. If he does things that seem to amount to incitements to violence, that begins to cross the line out of protected speech. Um, the problem is that it's also encased within the, the cocoon, as it were, of political speech, which uh, the courts int- tend to go as far as they possibly can to protect somebody's right to engage in political speech speech. I will say, and I don't think that's going to be the way to get this addressed anyway, to, to, to seek some kind of redress. I mean, I think that would be gasoline on the fire, to seek some kind of redress against Donald Trump for uh, incitement to violence. I, I don't think that's, first of all, a swift enough mechanism to deal with a problem. I'm not sure that would, it would even work uh, in terms of meeting legal standards. And I think most of all, it would confirm some of the paranoia and, and overexcitement that, that's already out there. It's, it's, that's, what's, what's worrisome right now is that there isn't a way to slow this process down, that you almost feel as though Obviously, people have been physically hurt and terrorized already, but somebody's going to really get hurt or somebody's going to get killed. And I don't know if we've got a good way to stop that from happening. It seems as though the bull is running through the china shop. Yeah, we probably have time for one last call. That's going to be Kathleen in Cheshire. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thank you, Colin. I really am happy that you are holding this program I am very concerned. I agree with the gentleman who called in and spoke about Hitler's rise in Germany with the Wehrmacht. This is happening again in this country. Mr. Trump presents himself really as a demagogue. If we do not stand together and say, look, you came here from another place. I came here from another place. How many of us really have African-American blood? How many of us really have Native American blood? How many of us are a composite of people who have come to this country or who have already been here? And if he goes after them, when is he going to come after me? And Kathleen, we're we're going to have to break it off there. I'm just I'm sorry. I'd love to let you talk a little bit more. We are flat out of time. Thanks to uh, Gina Amatruda uh, and to Kion Wolf and Betsy, uh, Betsy Kaplan. We had a little technical problem here. We got through it because a very nimble staff that's willing to cope with chaos. Uh, So we'll be back tomorrow with considerably less chaos.